Section 8 of Fourteen Months in American Bastilles by Francis Key Howard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The only notice taken of this communication was the following note from the Adjutant General. War Department, Washington, D.C., March 10, 1862. To Colonel Justin Dimmick, Fort Warren, Boston, Massachusetts. Colonel, I will thank you to inform Mr. Frank Key Howard that his letter of the third instant has been duly received, and that his case has been referred to the commissioners named in the within order. By the order of the Secretary of War, L. Thomas, Adjutant General. With this letter was forwarded a printed copy of Mr. Stanton's order of February 27th. The views of all those who had refused to accept any conditional discharge were, in the main, those set forth in the above letter to Mr. Stanton. Our time at Fort Warren, as at our previous places of imprisonment, passed as may be supposed, monotonously enough. Living as we did in overcrowded apartments, it was impossible to read or write with any satisfaction. Restricted as we were for many months to our quarters, or to a narrow strip of ground in front of them, we could derive little pleasure from exercising in the open air. To pace up and down within these contracted limits, where nothing was to be seen but the dull gray walls of our prison, was not a cheerful or invigorating mode of exercise. As month after month dragged wearily on, our hopes of release grew fainter and fainter, and though we seldom permitted ourselves to talk despondingly to each other, we did not think the less bitterly about the homes we had left, and the indignities we had endured. At Fort Warren the soldiers of the garrison differed, we were glad to find, from their comrades at Fort Lafayette. While the latter were incapable of delivering a message, or of giving the simplest order, save in a manner at once insolent and brutal, the former were uniformly good-natured and civil. Colonel Dimmick, the commandant of the post, discharged his disagreeable office in a way to which we could take no exception, and none of us in any interview with him ever found him otherwise than courteous and kind. As far as lay in his power, he left nothing undone to promote our comfort. On the 19th of April, an order was issued giving us permission to walk, between one o'clock p.m. and sunset, upon that portion of the ramparts immediately over our quarters. The space thus assigned us was just the length of that to which we had been limited upon the parade ground, that is, about three hundred feet. This extension of our bounds was an infinite relief to us, as from the ramparts we had a view of the bay and the surrounding shores. The unwillingness of the war and state departments to grant passes to persons desirous of visiting any prisoner may be judged from the following note from Mr. Seward to Rev. Mr. Hitzelberger, a Catholic priest residing in Boston. He had applied, at the request of Mr. T. Parkin Scott, for a permit to enable him, as a priest, to visit the latter, and received this reply. Department of State, Washington, November 20th, 1861 To the Rev. A. L. Hitzelberger Boston College, Harrison Avenue, Boston Sir, I have to acknowledge the receipt of your note of the 15th instant, with a copy of that which you addressed to Colonel Dimmick on the 15th of November. This department, having adopted a rule 
which precludes all visits to political prisoners, even from ministers of the gospel, of any denomination, has hitherto strictly observed it. If, however, the persons, themselves, shall in the event of sickness, or any other reasonable cause, request the services of their spiritual advisers, the rule would be relaxed in favor of any one of undoubted loyalty. I am, sir, your obedient servant, William H. Seward. It was not until April that Mr. Hitzelberger succeeded in obtaining a pass to visit Fort Warren. General Dix and Judge Pierpont, who had been appointed commissioners to examine the cases of state prisoners by Mr. Stanton's order of February 27th, arrived at Fort Warren, May 7th, 1862. They were engaged about five hours in disposing of these cases. Their examination consisted in asking one or two simple questions, no way touching any crime or offense known to the laws, and in offering to release, on parole, most of the parties called before them. Several persons were released on some special grounds, which distinguished their cases from those of the strictly political prisoners, who unanimously rejected the proposals of the commissioners. The latter did not attempt to say that the government had any specific charges to prefer against those on whom it wished to impose conditions. That these prisoners had been confined simply because their opinions were in opposition to those of the members and partisans of the administration was tacitly conceded by the commissioners in their so-called examination. The following is a memorandum of the interview between Mr. William H. Gatchell and Mr. Stanton's commissioners. It was drawn up by Mr. Gatchell a few hours after his examination. As I entered the room in which the commissioners held their meeting, General Dix advanced with his hand extended, saying, Good morning, Mr. Gatchell. I declined the proffered hand, remarking, Excuse me, sir, if you please. In a very short time, Judge Pierpont observed, I really forget, Mr. Gatchell, whether you have been offered the parole or not heretofore. I replied that I had been, and that I had declined it, for the reasons stated in my answer to the Secretary of War, which I suppose he had seen. He said he had not seen that answer. I told him that I would furnish the commissioners with a copy, that they might understand the grounds on which I placed to my refusal to accept it. I was then asked whether I continued of the same mind. I answered, certainly. Then, said he, for the present we have nothing more to do with your case. I then turned to General Dix and said, At the time we left Fort McHenry for Fort Lafayette, you, sir, assured our families and ourselves that our treatment should be as comfortable, if not more so, than at Fort McHenry, instead of which, for the first thirty days we were there, we were treated like brutes, that, but for the fact of our having taken our bedding with us, we should have been obliged to sleep upon the bare floor, and for fifteen days we had not a chair to sit upon. He said, I could not know what the conditions of things was at Fort Lafayette. I replied, You ought to have known before you made the promise, particularly as we were sent there by your orders. He then said, Mr. Gatchell, nobody knows better than you that what I did was by orders from my government. Yes, I replied, but as commander of a military department, those orders must have been suggested by you, or adopted with your advice and consent. 
The reasons why the gentlemen then in Fort Warren refused to give the required parole have already been adverted to. Four of us, Messrs. Scott, Wallace, my father, and myself, whom the government had, not openly or secretly, so far as we knew, charged with any illegal act, were not summoned before the commissioners. Our cases were therefore not examined, nor were we offered our liberty on any terms. Colonel Kane, against whom the government had managed to procure an indictment for treason, and who had been carried out of the state immediately afterwards, remained unnoticed also. He had been removed hundreds of miles away from the place where it was alleged he had committed a crime, and though for nine months the government had failed to bring him to trial, the commissioners suffered his case, also, to pass unexamined. To Mr. Brown, the mayor of Baltimore, General Dix said that all parties in Baltimore bore testimony to his personal integrity, and that the government recognized his fidelity in his intercourse with it, and he then offered to release him, provided he would resign his office. Mr. Brown replied that he was in the power of the government, and submitted only because he could not help himself, but he peremptorily refused General Dix's proposition to resign his office, remarking that to do so would be to forfeit his own self-respect. Comment on this infamous and insolent proposal is needless. An article which appeared in the Baltimore American on the 15th of May furnished conclusive evidence on the spirit in which the commissioners had acted. The principal editor and proprietor of that journal was Mr. Charles C. Fulton, a man who had been for years the apologist of every species of fraud and violence which had been perpetrated to advance the ends and interests of his party, or himself, and who was at that time the subservient dependent of General Dix and General Dix's master. As his account of the visit of the former to Fort Warren was mainly correct, so far as the facts therein stated were concerned, it may be fairly presumed that he received it from one of the commissioners or their clerk. In that article it was said, We understand that the prisoners not examined were Messrs. S. Teagle Wallace, T. Parkin Scott, Charles Howard, F. Key Howard, and George P. Kane, all of this city. The reason why no examination was made in these cases is understood to have been the conviction, on the part of the commissioners, that they ought not to be permitted to return to Baltimore, on any condition, while the class of citizens here, of which they are a type, keep up an unrelenting hostility to the government, provoking, most justly, a hostile feeling towards them, on the part of the Union men of this city. That the feeling of hostility to which we have alluded has been fostered and embittered by the vindictiveness of the secession women of Baltimore, there can be no doubt, and to them is due, in a great degree, at least, as prime movers of disloyalty, the continued imprisonment of their friends. It is manifest from these extracts that the hostile feeling of Mr. Lincoln's partisans towards us was one of the reasons why the outrage done us remained unredressed, and a disposition to inflict vicarious punishment on the women of Baltimore was another of the manly and just motives operating upon General Dix. On May the ninth, Colonel Dimmick enlarged our bounds. We had permission, from that time, to walk where we pleased, both inside and outside of the fortress. On giving our parole, 
not to attempt to pass beyond the line of sentinels who were stationed along the shore. Our parole also required us not to communicate with the shore, or with any one who might land on the island, and not to talk to the soldiers of the garrison, or to discuss political matters in their hearing. On Saturday, May 24th, Colonel Dimmick notified us that the political prisoners were to be sent back to Fort Lafayette. We regarded this as indicating a determination on the part of the government to subject us to all such indignities or punishments as it was in its power to inflict. That the government itself considered Fort Lafayette as peculiarly a place of punishment was made evident by an order which was received at the same time for the transfer of certain other persons to the same fortress. A number of prisoners of war, who had been taken in the battle below New Orleans, had reached Fort Warren but two days before. Among them were six officers of the steam battery Louisiana, which they had blown up, rather than suffer it to fall into the hands of the Federal forces. For this reason, the government chose to regard them as meriting severe treatment. On their arrival, they, like all other Confederate officers, were allowed the liberty of the island upon their parole. With the order of our transfer to Fort Lafayette came another directing that these officers should not be regarded as, nor receive the ordinary treatment of prisoners of war, and that they should be sent to Fort Lafayette with us. Their parole was instantly revoked, and they were placed under all the restrictions to which we had so long been subjected. It was thus made manifest that the government was fully aware of the specially painful character of the imprisonment which the unhappy captives in Fort Lafayette were compelled to endure. On Monday, the 26th, Colonel Dimmick received a dispatch informing him that Fort Lafayette was already full to repletion, and ordering him to retain us for the time at Fort Warren. That morning the public had been made aware of the fact that General Banks had been driven, by General Jackson, across the Potomac in great confusion. A special dispatch had been received at Fort Warren to the same effect during the previous night, and the garrison left that day in great haste for Washington. Probably the government had, for some time, more important matters to think about than the punishment of political prisoners, for we heard no more of any orders for our removal. On Thursday, July 31st, the prisoners of war, then in Fort Warren, some two hundred in number, left on a steamer for James River, where they were to be exchanged. After their departure, there were but fourteen political prisoners left in Fort Warren. On the 25th of October, a petition for a writ of habeas corpus in behalf of Mr. William H. Winder was filed in the United States Circuit Court in Boston. Judge Clifford, one of the judges of the United States Supreme Court, ordered the writ to be issued. The marshal declined to serve it. It was then placed in the hands of one of the sheriff's officers. The officer endeavored to reach the fort on the boat, which was in the service of the government, but was refused a passage, unless he could get an order from Colonel Dimmick, or the War Department. He then hired a sailboat, and attempted to communicate with the fort, but a vigilant lookout was kept, and he was warned off by the sentinels. He was utterly unable to serve it, and thus ended this attempt to release a political prisoner from Fort Warren through process of law. On the afternoon of the 12th of November, my father received a telegraphic dispatch informing him of the extreme illness of my sister. 
At the same time, Colonel Dimmick notified him that he was authorized to release him, upon his parole, to return to Fort Warren at the expiration of a limited period, and to commit no act of hostility in the meantime against the government. This was one of those few cases in which we had all agreed that it would be our duty to accept a temporary release. Colonel Dimmick desired to extend this parole to thirty days, but my father stated his unwillingness to remain in Baltimore, under any conditions whatsoever, any longer than might be absolutely necessary, and gave a parole, therefore, to return to Fort Warren in twenty days. The friends who had procured for him this temporary release had applied for one for me also, but of this application no notice was taken. Had I been then permitted, I should have thought it proper for me to go home. On the evening of the 14th I received a message from my father, dated in the morning, informing me that my sister's end was rapidly approaching. At the same time, Colonel Dimmick told me he was authorized to release me on parole. I subsequently learned that this order to him was the result of a renewed application on my behalf. But it came too late, and there were no longer any reasons moving me to take advantage of it, save such as were purely personal to myself. A few moments' reflection satisfied me that, under such circumstances, I ought not to deviate from my course. I therefore declined to accept the temporary and conditional release, which Mr. Stanton had so tardily offered me. While my father was at home, Colonel Dimmick proposed to extend the time of his stay indefinitely, and to receive his simple pledge to return to Fort Warren when so ordered, without extracting from him any other conditions whatsoever, thus leaving him, in all other respects, perfect freedom of action. My father declined, however, to take into consideration any further proposition looking to his discharge, temporarily or permanently, upon any terms whatsoever and notified Colonel Dimmick that he would be at Fort Warren on the 3rd of December, the day when his parole would expire. On the 24th of November, an order of the War Department, dated November 22nd, relating to the discharge of prisoners who had been arrested for interfering with the draft, etc., appeared in the Boston papers. Though the order did not refer directly to persons in our situation, still there was so much ambiguity in its language that it was not clear whether it might not be intended to include us. On the same afternoon, Colonel Dimmick received this dispatch. Washington, November 24th, 11.50 a.m. Commanding Officer, Fort Warren, Boston. None of the prisoners confined at your post will be released under order of the War Department of the 22nd instant, without special instructions from the War Department. By order of the Secretary of War, E. D. Townsend, A. A. G. I had not myself thought that the order of November 22nd would affect us, though some of my companions were of a different opinion. The above dispatch to Colonel Dimmick eventually banished from the minds of most of them any doubts upon the point. Late in the afternoon of the 26th of November, 1862, Colonel Dimmick entered our quarters and with a manifestation of much pleasure and good feeling, announced to us that our captivity was ended. He had just received a telegram from Washington, ordering our release, and containing no suggestion about terms or conditions. He furnished us the next morning, at our request, with the following certificate. Fort Warren, 
Boston Harbor, November 27, 1862. George P. Kane, George William Brown, Charles Howard, Frank K. Howard, Henry M. Warfield, William G. Harrison, Robert Hall, S. Teagle Wallace, Charles McGill, William Gatchell, Thomas W. Hall, T. Parkin Scott, William H. Winder. The above-named prisoners are released agreeably to the following telegram. J. Dimmick, Colonel, 1st Artillery Commanding Post. Washington, November 26, 1862. Colonel J. Dimmick, U.S. Army, Fort Warren, Boston. The Secretary of War directs that you release all the Maryland State prisoners, also any other prisoners, that may be in your custody, and report names to this office. Signed, E. D. Townsend, A. A. General. True Copy, Fort Warren, November 27, 1862. J. Dimmick, Colonel, 1st Artillery, Commanding Post. We left our prison for our homes on the morning of the 27th. There were, at the time of our release, no other prisoners in Fort Warren than those named, except one who was a native of Massachusetts, and who had been arrested in that state a few weeks previously. The gentlemen above named had, with a single exception, been my companions in Fort Lafayette, and of course in Fort Warren. All but one had been imprisoned over a year, and Mr. Gatchell, Colonel Kane, and my father, for nearly eighteen months. Each of them had determined at the outset to resist, to the uttermost, the dictatorship of Abraham Lincoln, and having done so, each had the satisfaction of feeling, as he left Fort Warren, that he had faithfully, and not unsuccessfully, discharged a grave public duty. We came out of prison as we had gone in, holding in the same just scorn and detestation the despotism under which the country was prostrate and with a stronger resolution than ever to oppose it by every means to which, as American freemen, we had the right to resort. End of section 8 End of 14 Months in American Bastilles by Francis Key Howard Recording by Katie Riley September 2010